So let's pray, and uh, we'll jump into the book of Job this morning. Father, thank you for another opportunity to gather as your people in a free country where we can gather and preach your word. And Lord, we, we don't miss the fact that on this Memorial Day weekend that, that many men and women sacrificed and suffered and even died for the freedom that we're experiencing right now. And we are grateful to you for that. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would encourage and speak to all of us. This morning there are so many needs and concerns and burdens represented in this room right now. And we pray, I ask, that you would minister to every single one of them. Encourage every single person in this room this morning. And we'll give you all the glory. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we are in Job 42, the very last chapter in the book of Job. Today is the final message in the book of Job. We've been doing an overview. But if this is your first Sunday and you've missed the whole series, that's okay. There's two things you can do. I will do a quick review. And you can check out our website. All the messages are on our website at sgcindianapa.org or just Google Saving Grace Church and you can find them. But by way of review, the book of Job is one of the books of the Bible, maybe the clearest book in the Bible, where for chapter after chapter, the author wrestles with the realities of pain and suffering and the goodness and trustworthiness of God. And Job himself was given a severe dose of trials and temptations. Just by way of review, he, on one day, ten of his children died. His wealth and reputation crumbled consequently. His relationship with his wife was severely strained through his trial. His closest friends were no longer helpful to him, and they were actually giving him bad and untrue advice. On top of that, he was inflicted with a severe skin disease to the point where he thought he may possibly die. And at times in the book of Job, he even wanted to die. And he said, it would have been better if I had not been born. So this is a man who really experienced suffering and hardship. And as we learned at the beginning of the book in chapter 1 and 2, Job was not being punished by God for any sins that he had done. In fact, God says "Have you to Satan, have you considered my, my servant Job? He is blameless. He is upright. He's the choicest of them who trust in the living God. But as the trials and temptations went on, Job did at times sin against God and his attitudes and his grumbling. Never not believing God existed, but he really wrestled with was God indeed good? And the kind of questions that we grapple with. Last week we covered chapter 38 through 41, which is this series of questioning that God spoke to Job. And God was making very clear who he was and how great and trustworthy he was and how Job needed to submit and worship him. And last week I showed a video from a band named Ghost Ship. And uh, it was a worship song 
put together from the words from, from Job 38 and following. And it has video to go with it. And the purpose of the video was to, to really capture who God is and how does that work with the suffering in the world. And many of you guys gave me a lot of feedback from that video. So I thought uh, by way of review, and for those of you who weren't able to be here last week, I wanted to show this video again and then we'll jump in to Job 42. God, I'm asking, could this be your plan? Sin has taken hold of this whole land. Will you not say anything else to me? He said, where were you the day that I measured, sunk the base and stretched the line over all the earth and carved out its cornerstone. Where were you the day that I spoke and told the sun to split the night open? Call the morning dawn with its light to show Who shut in the ocean with stone doors Marked the reach of tides on those new shores On the day the waves rose and first broke
Things too wonderful for me Although I had no right to ask My God knelt and answered me I love that song and I love the video that goes with it. The idea there is that as God questioned Job with all these questions that Job could not answer, God basically took Job with his mind's eye all around God's universe, all around God's creation. And the response is what we're going to look at today. So, Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Job chapter 42, verse 1. And we've been going through insights in the book of Job. So insight number one, we must trust God because of who He is. We must trust God because of who He is. Not because of what we see, but because of who God is. The title of this message is Learning to Trust God When We Cannot See. Job needed to trust God not based on his present experience, but based on who God is. So look at verse 1. What Job is going to do here, he's going to repeat the question that God asked Job, and then Job's going to give his own response to that question. Verse 1, Then Job answered the Lord, and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So his first response after this encounter with the Lord from the whirlwind was submission. I know, Lord, you can do all things and that nothing of your design can be stopped or thwarted. Then God asked this question to Job, And he's quoting it back to God. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That was a question that God addressed Job with. And Job's response now, after this encounter, Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. See, as you read the book of Job, he has all kinds of questions and accusations at times and lots of whys. And all the while, the Lord was wanting Job's trust, his allegiance, his confidence in who God says he is. Verse 4, God asks another question. Or it gives a statement to Job, not a question. He said, hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. So God sits him down in the scolding chair and says, Job, you're going to listen and I'm going to talk. And we learned last week, he also said to him at one moment, dress for action like a man. Meaning put on your fighting gear, we're going to fight with our words. So he sets Job down. Listen to Job's response. I had heard of you, verse 5, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. 
I'd heard of you. I believed in you, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. See, this one live encounter with the Lord changed everything for Job. Keep in mind, while he's having this conversation, he's still covered with skin disease. He's still grieving the loss of ten children. For all we know, his wife is still not happy with him or the Lord. His friends and counselors have still continued to give him bad advice. And yet things are changing in Job's world because his vision of the Lord has gotten much clearer. So how can Job repent if we learned at the beginning of chapter 1 and 2, he did not sin? Well, as I said at the beginning, it is a true statement that he did not sin to bring on any of his calamity. But he did sin throughout his trial. And that's what he's repenting of. That's what he's asking the Lord for mercy for. That's what he's acknowledging. That's what um, one translation said, a, a fine translation of the word repent here is to recant. I, I step away from everything I said to you, Lord, before. I turn from it all. I don't want to do that ever again. I'm going to repent in dust and ashes. He's going to bow his head to the Lord. Because keep in mind, God was revealing himself through this whirlwind and telling Job how great and awesome and mighty and all-knowing and all-powerful and all-wise and omnipresent he was. And so Job's gaze and his view of God was growing through this interaction. And Job was having a moment, a humbling moment, where he just had to say, Uncle, I give up. Lord, you're Lord, and I'm not. You know, in a lot smaller scale, we probably all have had moments in our lives where you've messed up. You've done something wrong. You're embarrassed by it. And you know the right road is to eat some humble pie and just acknowledge it. That's what Job is doing here. And God was pleased with that. See, what Job was beginning to, to discover is what Isaiah wrote about in Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. See, when we are squeezed and pressed by life's difficulties, we begin to have all kinds of thoughts and questions about the Lord. And maybe our trust in the Lord, though we're believers in the Lord, maybe it begins to shrink and shrivel up. And the Lord wants to remind us this morning through the book of Job, through the book of Isaiah, that God is so trustworthy. That God has not left you. That God deeply loves you. And His ways 
are not our ways. And though maybe we in our mind think, this is what I would do, the Lord has a different way, a better way. And we need to trust. We need to put our circumstances and our very life in his hands and say, Lord, I trust you. Insight number two. We must seek to grow in our relationship with God. Verse five. He said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. He already knew the Lord. He was already walking with the Lord. But he had a fresh encounter with the Lord that accelerated his growth. I heard of you. Now I really see you. Everywhere I look, I see you. It reminded me of, um, have you ever been to the eye doctor where they, you're looking through that, that machine and they keep switching lenses on you? And they say, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. And after a while, I don't know if one's one or two's two. And, um, but at times, you can see a major difference between one and two as they're giving you different options. Well, we want the option with the Lord where we can see him most clearly. And that comes from spending time with him. That comes from running to him and not away from him when life gets hard. That comes from calling out to him and asking the Holy Spirit to help you to see him more and more. See, Job is different in chapter 42 not because his circumstances have changed at all. I want you to get that. We're going to see his circumstances do change. But he has changed before his circumstances change because his view and vision and faith in the living God grew stronger, bigger. And see, Job, Job learned that he... And we are most satisfied, most happy, not when we get relief from our circumstances, but when we get closer to the living God. We are going to be, I want to convince you of this, you're going to be happiest when your view of the living God is bigger and greater than all your circumstances. We're going to see in a moment, it's not wrong to pray for relief. It's not wrong to ask for mercy. It's not wrong to pray for healing. It's actually encouraged. But what you and I need more than anything is ongoing live encounters with the living God. The psalmist got this in Psalm 34. He experienced the Lord and he's calling us to experience the Lord. Listen to these sensory words. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, taste. Think about when you eat your favorite food. You're not just putting it into your mouth for fuel for your body. There's a sensory experience of joy and delight. Seafood and salt gets my tongue awake. Taste and see. 
See, when you see something grand and brilliant, so those of you who have been out west or been all over the world on some beautiful mountain range, when you see it with your own eyes, different than a picture, you just have a response. You have an experience. The psalmist is saying, he's calling us, oh, experience the Lord. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How do we do that? Psalmist gives us one way. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. One way to experience the Lord is to run to him. Especially when life gets difficult. When there are pressures. When there are internal pressures and when there are external pressures. When, when the math doesn't add up for your bills. When you get a terrible medical diagnosis. When you have relational strain everywhere you look. When you get bad news after bad news. Go to the Lord for refuge. This might be a dumb example, but I was thinking of this as I was thinking about this passage. If I said a tornado is coming to Indiana County, it's going to hit town dead center at 11.15. So we've got 12 minutes. And I said we've got two options for shelter. We've got a couple of tents set up outside. They're nice. Even got some air mattresses in them and sleeping bags, some snacks. And then we got an underground shelter a little bit to the other side of the property. Two refuges you can run to for shelter. Which one are you going to go to? If you want to die, you'll go to the tent. But assuming you want to live, you're going to go to the underground shelter. They're both shelters. One's just far better. See, when pressures hit, we go to things for refuge. We go to all sorts of things. Some people go to alcohol. Some people go to drugs. Some people go to relationships. Some people go to money. Some people go to shopping. Some people go to just um, disconnecting from all people. We all have refuge, refuges we go to. What I'm begging you to do is make the Lord your refuge. Run to Him for shelter. And as you do, you will taste and see that the Lord is good. You will experience Him. Insight number three. The book of Job, we're going to skip verses 7 through 9. That's his, his friends and God rebuking his friends. We talked about that when we went through that a few weeks ago. So I'm going to go right to verse 10. And the book of Job is about to take a really surprising turn for good that you might not see coming. And that, that brings us to insight number three. We can pray for and look forward to mercy and restoration. It's not wrong to pray for relief. It's not wrong to pray that things get put back together, if it's at all possible to be put back together. It's actually a good thing. And it will ultimately one day happen. It's not guaranteed this side of heaven, and we'll get into that in a moment. But the Lord, after he does business with Job, 
And after Job's heart is right with the Lord, not because his heart is right, but just sequentially it happens afterward, God begins to restore Job and bless Job. Look at verse 10. And I don't think there was anything in Job's mind that thought this would happen. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. And when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then, then they came to him, all his brothers and sisters. He had all kinds of relational strain with them. And all who had known him before and ate bread with them in his house. And they showed him sympathy and they comforted him for all the evil, the Lord, the calamities the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And we're going to see a lot more blessing in a moment. But he gets a sudden restoration and physical healing and wealth is being restored. Still has the loss of his ten children. Still has the grief of the loss of his ten children. But God begins to restore and rebuild and care for Job. I mean, think of the things that are going to be restored. We're going to find out in a moment Job is going to be able to be a father again. He's eventually going to become a great, great grandpa. The Lord is going to give him a long life. He's going to restore his marriage. He's going to restore his friendships. He's going to restore his businesses. He's putting everything back together. Because God is just gracious and lavish like that. Look at verse 12. And the Lord blessed the later days of Job more than his beginnings. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapich, we'll say. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. That's great-great-grandpa. And Job died an old man and full of days. The peak of Job, of his misery, is chapter 3 of the book of Job, where he is in immense turmoil. And he, he says things like, I wish I was a stillborn child. I wish I had never been born. Job would have never, ever imagined this day would happen again. He was done. He was waving the white flag. Take me now, Lord. End it all. So what do we do with this? Does this mean that God will always restore Always bless us physically, materially, relationally. I don't think it means it always will. Bob Mundorf preached a great sermon a few weeks ago entitled The Already Not Yet. Getting at the tension of there's a present reality of salvation and there's an ultimate reality. There's a present reality where God heals and there's an ultimate reality where he will universally heal all. 
And we live in that tension. But while we're in that tension, it is not wrong to pray and petition the Lord for relief and ask Him for relief. But doing so, trusting Him. Doing so, submitting to Him that no matter the answer, you're still trusting Him. I was thinking that um, I'm a dad of three kids and they like to do stuff, fun stuff, and so they'll ask me for money. Lily went to a Pirates game this week, and, and, and when we're able, we love to give them money, and uh, we encourage them to get jobs too, that helps. Uh, but sometimes we say no. Sometimes we have to say no. And what I really appreciate about particularly um, Isaac and Lily, who, who are older, is they, they, when they understand, okay, the answer is no. Maybe there's a little bit of disappointment, but there's a real trust and confidence in mom and dad in their decision for that one. Boy, that is great as a dad. They're not raging. They're not cursing my name. They're not um, yelling and screaming at us. I think it's the same way with the Lord. We present our request to the Lord. Lord, would you please heal me? Lord, would you please provide for me? Lord, been working on this relational strife for decades. Just some relief, please. See, God is powerful and gracious and merciful. And he very well may intervene. He very well may deliver you. Maybe you have a besetting sin, a besetting addiction. And Lord, would you just take it away? And then he takes it away. So we need to ask Him. And be expectant when we ask Him, because remember who you're asking. The Maker of heaven and earth. See, the Lord tells us to come to Him. But while we're in that waiting time, we need to remember how it will end for us. One day, as Bob made clear a few weeks ago, there will be no pain, suffering, grief, regret. Look at Revelation 21. This is of a future day that has not happened yet. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, of, throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. I mean, that thought alone should cause us to marvel. We can dwell with the Lord through faith in Christ. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. God Himself will be with them as their God. There will be no more barrier. There will be no more walking by faith. We will have absolute sight. And for those of you who have mourned and grieved and are doing so presently, verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Death. The hardest, really the hardest, one of the hardest things of the human condition. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor grieving, nor pain. Physical, emotional, relational. Imagine that. No more pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This is true for every believer in Jesus Christ. If you have put your trust in Christ, 
that awaits you. So what do we do in the in-between time? We must remain steadfast. Insight number four, amidst difficulty. We must remain steadfast. I don't know if you remember or not, but Job is actually mentioned in the New Testament in the book of James. And so I want to read the section where he's mentioned. And he's commended. But for context, start at verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers. Be patient. Hang in there. Until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Be patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, Brothers, take the prophets who spoke the name of the Lord from the Old Testament. Verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Here comes our guy. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. See, in the book of Job from chapter 3 till chapter 38, we get kind of Job's mess a bit. But when God wanted to preserve Job in the New Testament, he wants to point out a great character strength of Job. Though he had some struggle, he remained steadfast. He never cursed God like his wife suggested. He never turned his back on the Lord, even though he struggled at times. He passed both tests of Job 1 and 2 that Satan presented to him. He remained steadfast, not perfect, but trusting in the mighty King of heaven and earth. And that's what the Lord's calling us to do, to remain steadfast, to continue to pursue and trust in the Lord, no matter how hard it is, no matter how difficult it gets. I was watching this interview the other week or month on and a man who I think was in his 80s, might have been in his late 70s, he had just completed hiking the entire Appalachian Trail. Not a young guy, but he was doing it in his, in his late 70s, early 80s. And the young interviewers were saying, well, give us some advice. We want some advice. How can you be such a successful hiker, especially at your age, they were saying, but they didn't say it. It was implied. He had a very simple but profound answer to the question, what advice would you give me? And I think it has great spiritual application. Here's his advice. Never quit on a bad day. Never quit on a bad day. That was his advice when it was raining, when it was cold, when his body hurt. I will never quit on a bad day. Some of you are having a bad day, a bad week, a bad month. Do not give up on the Lord. He promises he will keep you. He promises he will remain steadfast. Which brings us to the final insight. We must entrust ourselves to him who promises to keep us. See, here's the beauty of being a Christian Even if you give up on a bad day, he doesn't give up on you. He scoops you up and picks you up. 
Peter understood this. Remember Peter who denied Christ after being a disciple of Christ? This is Peter writing as an older man. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all, every anxiety on him because he cares for you. God will keep you. He wants your cares. Give him your cares, your worries, your fears, your temptations. Throw them all on him. And if you are into tattoos, if you want a cursive tattoo, it's a conscience issue, do what you want, but add this to your collection if, if you're into it. He cares for you. That would be a great tattoo if you're into tattoos. Those of you who aren't into tattoos, I'm not condoning tattoos. Like I said, I think it's a conscience issue before the Lord. This isn't a message about tattoos. The point is, I want you to believe this verse, if you are a Christian, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, He cares for you. For you. Put your name in there. He cares for you. No matter what is happening in your world, He really, deeply, powerfully, passionately cares for you. After all, he sent his son. He gave up his son for you. Throughout this series of Job, um, Lynn Bassler, a member of our church, has, has been emailing and sending uh, Bob Mundorf and I a whole bunch of good thoughts about the book of Job. And at one point, after like the third good email of profound thought that I read, I just asked her, Would you, is there any way you could just write all this down and share it with the church? So to close this message, I've asked Lynn Bassler to come up and just share some of her thoughts. She had many more, so you can talk to her afterward, um, of just things that she has learned over the years. So come on up, Lynn. Hi. Um, yeah, first, I just wanted to thank Joe and Bob. Like, this has been so helpful to me. Can we just thank them for this great series on Joe? So good, Joe. So good. Thank you. So, I love the book of Job, and I was really glad for the chance to revisit it this last few weeks. Um, and I know many of you have suffered far more than me. Um, and could probably do a lot better job of sharing this. And if you haven't suffered yet, well, first yay, and then uh, buckle up. <laughs> okay, so if I do have anything helpful to share, I assure you I learned it by doing it all wrong. I have been the one who has absolutely shaken my fist at God. I've given up, walked away. I've judged others and their sufferings. I've given bad advice. And I've said all the wrong things in all the difficult situations. And I have rarely, if ever, understood suffering. And I get that we live in this fallen, broken world. I know that Jesus said that in this world we'd have tribulation. I know it's going to happen. But when it does, that cry of why doesn't ever seem to get a specific answer. But we don't need to offer reasons why we're suffering or why someone else we know is suffering. 
somehow I had the idea for a long time that a big part of suffering was to teach me a lesson or maybe to discipline me, much like the Israelites in the desert going around and around the mountain until they got it right. And of course, biblically, there's truth in that. And we also suffer because of sin, either our own or often someone else's. And sin has consequences. But while God can do so many layered things in our lives through all the trials, I now believe that there's this one main all-encompassing point, which is just to bring us closer to Jesus. In a book I read called Struck, a pastor named Russ Ramsey wrote a really detailed account of his horrible sufferings after he got a heart infection that pretty much nearly killed him. It was a long, terrible journey, but he said, because the Lord often withholds explanation for our pain, we must not look at suffering as though it's some divine gimmick designed to teach us an important lesson. That would make too little of the reality of what we're living through. God's people don't walk through suffering toward the moral of a story. Rather, we walk toward the eternal presence of the maker and lover of our souls. We walk through trials toward Jesus. And that has made all the difference for me. And now that I've been around the block, you know, or the mountain a few times or many times, uh, when I'm suffering, I don't hear Jesus asking me if I've learned my lesson or learned a lesson. I hear him saying, I'm here. You know, he's Emmanuel, God with us. I'm here. I love you. Do you believe that I love you, Lynn? That's what matters. Again, the main thing in my experience is in the lesson, and sometimes it hasn't even been immediate repentance of my attitude. The main thing is God loving me. And if I don't understand anything at all about the trial I'm walking through, and if I wail and I'm howling to heaven, God seems more concerned with loving me and helping me through it than if I'm handling it well. Do I want to handle it well? Well, of course. Well, you know, sometimes. <laughs> but if I can hold on to the truth that he's with me and he loves me, then I am walking through suffering toward Jesus. And if I don't ever get anything else, any wisdom, any understanding, if I don't have clarity about it, if I don't learn a lesson, <laughs> but if I keep loving him through it, then that's the most important thing in the whole universe is walking through that fog of suffering and coming out closer and more dependent on him. Last week I was with a friend whose teenage son died in an accident a few years ago. You don't really ever get over that kind of stuff. But as she suffers, I'm watching her walk toward the lover of her soul. She doesn't know why her son died. Not a lot of great lessons so far. No moral of the story, whatever it might be. But here's what she said. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's faith hanging on when you don't feel God's love or goodness when the circumstances make him look cold and uncaring. He died for us. We believe he loved us no matter what's happening in our lives. That's what faith is. So in the Bible, there's a book of Lamentations. And I looked up the word, and it means to grieve and express sorrow, which I knew. But it also means to complain or to rage. And I found comfort in that because I've done that for sure. And in the book I mentioned before, the author talks about lamenting as being very biblical. The idea is that a Christian lament, it starts with God. Something happens. You're like, oh, God. You're at least starting with him, right? And in the end, it ends with God. 
like Job. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But in the middle, there's this whole long mess, weeping and howling. It's messy. It's scary. People say and do strange things when they're really in grief. And I just learned that it's okay to howl. When someone's broken in grief, give them time. Give them space to wail. And everybody's grief timetable's different. It's not helpful to place our time table on someone else, thinking they don't seem to be grieving enough, or they should be over it by now. Just, let's just give each other grace and space. Um, when God made the world, he said it was good, and so it is. And we need to be intentional in looking for the good around us. But as we know, the world is a fallen place, and maybe we aren't always suffering in big life and death ways, but all of us are worn down by living here. We go to work, we fix the stuff, and change the diapers, and buy the food, and clash with your boss and your family and your neighbor, and then it's only like noontime, and hopefully you can stop for lunch before you start again. But we are exhausted, emotionally, physically, spiritually beat. And I believe that God takes this into account. Again, there's never an excuse for sin. I'm not saying that. But here's what I mean. My three-year-old granddaughter's transitioning out of her nap time. I love that little girl. She stops sleeping in the afternoons, and around three or four, she starts to fall apart now because she's tired. But I know she's exhausted. And by seven o'clock at night, sometimes just like mentioning we have to brush your teeth causes great drama and inconsolable weeping. And in that moment, I don't begin this long explanation of why dental hygiene is so important and insist that she agree with me. I brush her teeth, but the goal is to help her rest. So I calm her and I sing and I read a book and I tuck her in. And to the best of my ability, I just want her to know that I love her. I think that's what God does for me when I'm sad and hurt and angry, exhausted, confused, suffering. He's mindful that I'm tussed, tired, overwhelmed, wanting my own way, dust. And although obedience is clearly important, so important, because he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Most of all, more than that, he just wants me, he wants us to come to the end of that day exhausted, just being held in his arms and knowing that we're loved. That's He's always with us, he's Emmanuel, and he loves us. So if you're tired and if you're suffering, Walk toward the lover of your soul. Jesus loves us. This we know, for the Bible tells us so. Good job. Great job. If I could have the, the worship band come on up. We're going to wrap up here. Thank you, Lynn. She had... A lot more than that to share as well. So I would really seriously encourage you to talk to her. Uh, we're going to have uh, a time of prayer after um, the service. And I uh, imagine she'll be up here too if you would like prayer or like to talk to her a bit. Uh, let me encourage you, as she said and as, as I said, and we're all kind of saying the same thing, to come to the Lord and not go away from the Lord. And one way to do that is, when we, we wrap up, is to have um, the prayer team pray for you, to have friends pray for you, to, to just take a step out towards the Lord and towards others. And I wanted to close with one final verse. 
Because if you feel like you're fumbling and stumbling and wailing and can't get your bearings, but you've trusted in the Lord, be encouraged from this passage in Jude, verse 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forevermore. Let's stand and pray. Lord, thank you that you're the keeper of our souls. Lord, you're the great shepherd. You're the one who does not leave us or lose us. You're the one who does not get tired with us. Lord, you are so kind and compassionate and powerful. And Lord, would you care for your kids today? Would you minister to them? Would you take their heavy burdens off of their own shoulders and put them on yours? Lord, would you please be glorified? And we love you and trust you and ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As we're saying,